this and uh, consider this, and then we'll take a break. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, and David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. And the sons, and sons were born to David at Hebron. And his firstborn was Amnon of Aenoam of Jezreel, his second Chiliab of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel, and the third Absalom, the son of Mekah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshua. And the fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith, and the fifth, uh, Shephatha, the son of Abitai, Abital, and the sixth, uh, Ithream of Eglah, David's wife. These were born to David in Hebron. Hi. Long war, Saul's house gets weaker, David's house gets stronger. You know, David is gradually gaining the upper hand. And uh, so that's kind of, that's almost the, the end of the story in chapter 2. Now we, we mentioned David's family. And it's important for us to know David's children here uh, for some reasons that we'll see later on in the story. So who was David's firstborn son? Uh, he has Amnon. Maybe we'll just go down with him. Amnon, and then who? Chiliab. Chiliab, which in Chronicles, his name is Daniel, but he never figures into the story after this. So everybody assumes maybe like he died young or something. Uh, after Amnon is who? Absalom. And then after Absalom? Adonijah. Those are the ones that we uh, are going to look at especially in the story, actually, Adonijah, you see in 1 Kings chapter 1. But, but in the story of David and his family, Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah, it's pretty important to know the order of those and, and so forth. Now, do you see anything that strikes you as uh, troubling about David's family, even from this account, Logan? Well, it says that one of his wives, or one of the, at least one of the women that his children were born by, was the daughter of the king of Jeshur. Yes. I don't know where that is, but wouldn't that indicate that David had intermarried with some... Yes. That's troubling. Good point. Eric. The law for the kings in Deuteronomy 17 told him to not amass a lot of wives, and here he has several wives. Yeah, that's exactly right. Deuteronomy 17, don't multiply wives for yourselves, and uh, talking to the kings, and it looks like that's what he did. Why would a king multiply wives to himself anyway? Political. Greed? Political. I think a lot of times it was for political reasons. You make alliances by intermarrying with uh, royal household princesses. You know, and so there may have been some of that, especially Mary's the daughter of the king of Geisha and so forth, as you mentioned. Um, but really wasn't the right thing to do. I, polygamy in and of itself seems to always work out badly. Not surprising because it wasn't really God's creation plan. It often leads to rivalry and competitiveness. It's bad enough the rivalry in households where you have the same mom and the same dad. Can you imagine what it's like where you've got the same dad and different moms and every mom wanting their kid, you know, to be ahead of the others. So that could be really complicated and was. Um, so I, I think you see some troubling things about that. Overall, there are many good things we could say about David throughout the story of 2 Samuel, but there are some troubling things as well. Comments or questions? They're also not supposed to marry foreigners, and like Nehemiah and Ezra both dealt with that pretty heavily about marrying foreigners, and three of his four wives, or so forth, wives here are foreigners. Yeah, 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 that's, that's definitely not the thing that he should have done. What do you think Lord. about Eglin, verse 5, being in the name from Michael? 
Have you heard of that before? Uh, say that again. Eggla being another name for Michael. I have not heard of that. I don't, I don't know. I'd say probably not. Did, did Michael not have any children? Michael died childless in the end of chapter I don't think he has Michael back yet. Yeah. Right. Of course, this is kind of a general account, but yeah. I, I have not heard that. So. Other thoughts? Right. Do you think uh, the reference to this is, you know, David's house kept growing stronger and the house of Saul grew weaker continually? Do you think by that it meant that he was losing members of his family or that he was just kind of kind of cursed by God, something like that? Um, well, I think it's just saying that gradually, you know, David's forces were gaining the upper hand and Saul's were losing out. I mean, this was not a, you know, just a single thing. It was kind of over time, you know, you see the, the gradual uh, increase of David's strength. Just as a point of note about the book overall, in chapter 5 there's another list of David's family, but then in chapter 8 there's a list of people that are his officials, and then in chapter 20 there's another list of his officials. So you have four lists in the whole book. Good point, yes. It's kind of a summarizing thing. Obviously he has these children over a period of time. We're kind of collecting them up, and that's a handy uh, reference for us. Good point. Other thoughts? It's encouraging. A number of you I know have really prepared well with 2 Samuel, so it's helpful to share these thoughts. And I'm very uh, pleased about that. I, I, I did this late in the day last year. I think it may be helpful for me to start this now. I, I have a list of people that I am expecting to find places to spend the night. And let's go back to our uh, study. We have uh, Ishbosheth. Uh, waning and David uh, waxing. He's getting stronger. Ishbosheth is getting weaker. And so, uh, would somebody read chapter 3, verses uh, 6 through 11? And it came about while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner was making himself strong in the house of Saul. Now, Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner was very angry over the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show kindness to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and I have not delivered you into the hands of David. And yet today you charge me with a guilt concerning the woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if as Yahweh has sworn to David, I do not accomplish this for him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and to establish the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba. And he no longer and he could no longer answer Abner a word because he was afraid of them. Okay. Now you've got a background principle that we need to think about in this story. And that is that the wives of the prior king are considered to be sort of the property of the successor. That is, the next king get the, gets the wives. And uh, that becomes important in several stories. Uh, but that's just the harem belongs to the following king. So now you've got this situation between Abner and Ishbosheth. Ishbosheth is the king, quote unquote, 
Saul's son, but the one who's really the power, the mastermind, the guy who put him in as king is Abner. So Abner's almost like acting king. He's the one who really runs the show, but Ishbosheth is the one who's got the title. And now you've got this situation where um, uh, Ishbosheth questions Abner, why have you gone in to my father Saul's concubine? Now, the question there is more than sexual then. This is, is almost like, if this is true, that he's making a claim to the throne. He's saying that he's king to, for him to uh, actually uh, take his, uh, Saul's concubine. What was Abner's attitude about this? He's upset. Yes, he's very upset with the accusation. And so what does he decide to do? Teams. Yes, change teams. And uh, he's going to bring the rest of the team with him, his team. He said, I'm going to switch allegiance to David and I'll get all the people to follow David and not you. He's going to get even. You know, because he says, I, you know, I got the power. If I want to, I can make the whole kingdom follow David and not you. You wonder, do you reckon it was true, the accusation that he'd taken Rizba? Yeah really seems logical to me that he probably wanted to flaunt the idea that he was more or less the king even if he didn't have the title. I wouldn't, you know, just insist on that, but, but I suspect it was an accurate accusation. I don't know that Abner ever really says that it wasn't. He's just upset about being attacked and criticized over this point. Uh, and you know, Abner's the one who's got the power and the leverage, and Ishbosheth is pretty much helpless. You know, it's almost like the power of Saul's family is never really defeated, just sort of evaporates. You know, it just gets weaker and weaker until there's not really much left on the side of Saul's family. That's the way it looks to me like. Comments and questions on this, uh, you know, beginning of this uh, story. Beto. What does he mean when he says, am I a dog's head of Judah? Yeah. Do you consider me as just a, uh, somebody contemptible? You know, somebody just worthless and, and uh, you know, am I some kind of a dog's head that, that you just think you can, you know, criticize me for anything? That's the, what I get out of that. Anybody know something better? Okay. Logan. Um, question. Um, based on his reaction, I'd always assumed that just based on the strong nature of his reaction that Ishbosheth's um, accusation of him wasn't true. But up, upon rereading, it almost seems like he's saying, "How dare you be critical of me?" More than he's saying, "How dare you make a false accusation against me?" Maybe that's what I. That's the way I would read it. So, is there any indication as whether this was or wasn't true? Well. I think it probably was, but I don't know if I can prove that. Yeah. Other questions or comments to this point? Pretty threatening deal right here. You know, he's saying, okay, I'm just going to bring the whole kingdom with me uh, over to David's side. Do you think he'll be able to do that? 12 to 21. <laughs> Then Abner sent messengers to David in his place, saying, 
Who is the land? Make your covenant with me, and behold, my hand shall be with you. Bring all Israel over to you. He said, Good, I will make a covenant with you, but I demand one thing of you, namely, you shall see not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see me. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me a wife, give me my wife, Michael, to whom I was betrothed for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Petel, the son of Leshen. But her husband went with her, weeping as he went, and followed her as far as Baharm. Then Abner said to him, Go, return. So he returned. Now Abner had, had con consultation with the elders of Israel, saying, In times past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken to David, saying, by, my, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin, and in the addition, Abner went to speak in the hearing of David and Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and to the whole house of Benjamin. Then Ab Abner and twenty men went with him, came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. Abner said to David, Let me arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord, the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may be king over all that your soul desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. Now, you've got Abner making good on the threat. You know, he, he sends messengers to David. And says, look, we'll make a deal and I'll hand all Israel over to you. That's a pretty good offer from David's perspective. Get the kingdom without having to uh, uh, fight. So that, that's an, a good thing. And uh, what's the one condition David puts on making this agreement? Bring me Michael. Yes, I get Michael back. And... Uh, you know, he actually paid for her with those uh, Philistine foreskins and he wants her back. Now, I don't know, again, whether the point of this is so much that he likes her as it is political. You know, if he's got Michael, then in some senses he is also in line for Saul's throne. He's the son-in-law. So I suspect there may be more political significance to this than there is romantic. But at any rate, that's what he wants. That's the condition for making the treaty with Abner. And so Abner gets that job done. Her husband, new husband, is not too happy about the situation, but he doesn't have a whole lot of choice in it. So Michael becomes David's wife again. And uh, then Abner, you know, it's going to take more than Abner agreeing. He's got to get the actual people of Israel to agree to this. So look at what he says to them. He calls the elders of Israel together. He says in 17, in times past, you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it. For the Lord has spoken of David saying, by the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. And they agree. Now, what do you think about the argumentation that Abner uses to try to get Israel to agree to accept David as their king too.
it sounds like to me he's trying to convince them that it's their idea rather than God's idea. Okay, maybe so. Although he says that it was God's idea because uh, the, the Lord has spoken of David by the hand of David. Uh, I will deliver them from the Philistines. There's something that bothers me about that. Does anything bother you about that? Okay. He waited until Ishbosheth made a bad before he accepted what he says was the Lord's idea. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, if he has so much respect for the word of the Lord, why did he ever put Abner up as king in the first place as a rival to David if the Lord had said to David, you're to be the king? I think the Lord had said that to David. Abner probably knows that. He just didn't care until it happened to serve his political purposes. That's what it looks to me like, Jason. Yeah, and would you take from verse 15 that Ishbosheth just went along with this and he agreed to it? To, to giving Michael back? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think Ishbosheth doesn't have any way not to. Mm -hmm. Abner's running the country. <laughs> Ishbosheth is just the you know front for it. So yeah, I think he feels like he has to. Um, but I, you know, I think it's just hypocritical somewhat. To suddenly, now that he has a reason to want David to be king, he uses what the Lord had said. You know, why didn't he care about what the Lord had said previously? You know, it's a valid reason. It just shows you that he only, you know, uses the Lord when it suits his purposes. People do that all the time. You know, they'll give you some, you know, godly reason for this or that. But you can tell it, it's not because of that, because in a whole lot of other areas, they don't care about what the Lord says. Comments and thoughts on that idea? So Abner comes to David, and 20 men with him, they have a feast, you know, kind of a peace feast. And uh, they make the agreement, you know, they shake hands on it, or you know, whatever that was. And uh, David sent Abner away, and he went away in peace. And uh, he'd gone in peace, the end of verse 22. And he's gone in peace, the end of verse 23. Very important here. There, there's, there's a peace treaty right here. They are at peace. When Abner leaves David, everything's at peace. And the agreement's sealed. Abner brings, you know, Israel to follow David. And everything's going to be great. This is, this is wonderful. And never mind Ishbosheth, he doesn't have any power anyway. That seems to be kind of the idea. Do you have a comment or question to this point? Right. I think it's kind of interesting to know um, about Peltiel, who was uh, Michael's husband, how he you know, followed him out and he was sad. But then it kind of seemed like he was hoping that Abner would, you know, let him have her back because he noticed he's following. But then he said, you know, go return. And he did so. It's just interesting to think that, you know, he was a medium. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe he didn't have a lot of choice either, but yes, he was. Other thoughts? Okay. Uh, well, things fall apart. And maybe not for the reason we would have first imagined. 22 to 27. Behold, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away. He had gone in peace. When Joab and all the army that was with him arrived, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king, and he has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? 
Behold, Abner came to you. Why then have you sent him away? And he's <clears throat> and he is already gone. You know Abner the son of Ner that he came to deceive you and to learn of your going out and coming in and to find out all that you are doing. When Joab came out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. So when Abner returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the middle of the gate to speak with him privately. And there he struck him in the belly so that he died on account of the blood of Asahel, his brother. Is that where you want to start? Yeah, Please. very good. Yeah. So, well, Joab comes back. He finds out about the peace treaty. What does he think about it? Bad deal. Uh, this is not good. This is not right. Abner's a deceitful man. This is not. This is not on the up and up. He does not approve of this. And uh, you know, he fe really feels like that that Abner has ulterior motives. You know, this is this. He's not going to be sincere in this. You know, and so forth and so on. And uh, so, what does Joab do about it? He acts exactly the way he's accusing Abner. <laughs> deceitful, That's true. Deceitful, and takes care of it himself. And, yeah, exactly. And does the same thing to David that Abner was doing to Ishbosheth. Yes, that's exactly right. So he almost uh, pulls an Abner on David, or at least what he said Abner was doing. Yeah, very good point. That's exactly right. You know, and uh, do you see something about Joab's nature in this? You know, he is not a man inclined to negotiate, to bargain, or to talk. He's a man of action. You know, he's a man who believes that a little well-aimed killing will go a lot farther than anything else. And he's not above uh, demonstrating that from time to time. And in this particular case, the victim is Abner. He calls him back. And where does he actually meet Abner? In what city? Hebron. That's interesting. Talk about that in a moment. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, uh, presumably this is some kind of a, you know, high-level cons consultation between the two commanders, you know, maybe following up on the peace treaty. But uh, what does Joab actually do? Yeah, by? Remind you of anything? <laughs> Yeah, so uh, same method of execution. Now, there's a lot of things that are interesting about this. He, he would imply that his motive for this was, you know, he's the avenger of blood, blood vengeance for what Joab had done, or what, what Abner had done to, to Asahel, his brother. He's a brother, so he's going to take vengeance on this uh, murderer, of his brother. Do you see a problem with that? His brother was trying to murder Abner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This was not exactly, uh, you know, some sort of uh, unilateral aggression. He's defending himself in war. You know, killing in war is not considered to be murder in the sense that you can avenge the blood. And it was self-defense because he was going to get killed. Somebody said something else about Hebron. Hebron was a city of refuge where those who were, uh, you know, manslaughterers but not guilty of premeditated murder could go and not face the vengeance of the avenger of blood. So ironically, in the city of refuge, 
he's killed for what he's claiming is manslaughter. Doesn't really look like it even was that, Jason. And it doesn't seem Job is too concerned with what the Lord would have to say anyway. Yeah, yeah, that, that would be an exceptional thing for a man like Joab to uh, be particularly concerned about the Lord's will in this. Yeah, I agree. Do you think there might be some other motives Joab would have besides just Asahel? Yes, I think, uh, you know, on a noble point, perhaps he wants to protect David. You know, he thinks that Abner would be bad news for David and so forth. Maybe there is some of that. He's a loyal supporter of David, sort of. And, uh, you know, would try to promote what he sees as David's interest. But I suspect more than anything, he's bumping off a potential rival to commander of the army ship. You know, that if, you know, who knows what's going to get Abner in there. And, you know, he may worm his way in and, you know... Joab won't be commander anymore. I suspect he's mostly protecting his own interests. He's got various possible motives, maybe a combination of these, for doing something he really was acting totally without authority. I mean, who gave him the right? I mean, he's Joab's commander. He has no right, or he's David's commander. He has no right to just usurp David's authority. And this, you know, uh, aggression against uh, Abner was, was uncalled for uh, when we really stop and look at it. Comments and thoughts on this? Yeah, just, just reviewing, who's, who's the good guy and who's the bad guy? <laughs> it's really complicated through here. I think we can find the bad guy to have a harder time finding the good one. Yeah, Andrew. I think it's interesting to compare um, the different personalities in Joab and David. Um, David had several opportunities to get rid of his enemies. Joab hastens to shed blood, and I think that really speaks to the good character of David because he did what was harder. He showed compassion and mercy, and sometimes that's harder than actually acting with anger against our enemies. That's exactly right. Anybody can fight. Anybody can, uh, you know, at least get a, you know, weapon, or you know, you don't have to be strong even to do that. Uh, but it takes a bigger man to be patient and long-suffering and uh, unselfish. Good point. Yes, David. Gary, you might contrast that when Joab tried to stop David from making a mistake later on. Yes, with the census. Yes, that's right. You know, Joab is an interesting person. He's a complex character. Sometimes he seems to have some understanding of the will of the Lord, and other times he seems so focused on himself and his own power that he loses track of what the will of the Lord would be. Other thoughts, Kelly? It's a comparison. I mean, uh, Ishbosheth does not have any control over Abner, and in many ways, David won't have really control over Joab. So the king is not always really king. Yeah, you're exactly right. David never seems to have guts enough to deal with Joab, and Ishbosheth didn't have anything enough to deal with Abner, so you're right. Kind of parallel situations. Yes, Micah. Is there any comparison between here Joab avenging for his bro uh, brother Asahel versus David having the Amalekite killed for Saul? Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, I think the thing would be it was it was unprovoked aggression on the Amalekites' part, and you know this was not legitimate blood vengeance vengeance in connection with Asahel. So maybe you've got the contrast in that. Is that what you're thinking? Yeah. yeah. Good point. Yeah. 
lot of things to think. There's a lot of times angles and comparisons you don't first think about, but it's helpful to share those things, and some of them you need to meditate on a little bit. So Chris. we really don't know then what Abner's ultimate goal was and who his allegiance was really to. Yeah. I mean, other than himself. Yeah, that's what I would say. I think Abner is uh, pro Abner, and I think he would see that the best thing for Abner right now is to lie with David. He's pretty sore at Ishbosheth. But I mean, I so I assume he would have delivered. But I expecting some type of. Uh, I, you know, wouldn't wouldn't surprise me a bit from later stories if they hadn't already made an agreement that Abner becomes the new commander, you know, in place of Joab. I bet Joab had a reason to think, at least based on David's nature, that that could happen. Based upon things that happen later, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised. Yeah. Well, he puts a Mesa in place of Joab after the Absalom rebellion okay. in Second Samuel twenty. Yeah. Does, does Joab does Joab stick with him in the Absalom rebellion? Yes. Oh, yes. He kills Absalom. <laughs> Which might not be sticking with him. I, you know, I'm not sure David thought it was. <laughs> There's a lot of complex things. That's one cool thing about Second Samuel. There's a lot of complex character studies. And there's a lot of kind of ironies and, and I don't know, it's kind of like, you know, it's as complex as people are. He's devoted to a fault. Yeah, I, I think you could say Joab was generally devoted to what he thought of as David's best interest right after his own, you know. He is loyal to David in the sense that I think he thinks what he does is promoting David's cause. He's not necessarily loyal to what David says to him. He doesn't necessarily follow orders. Dad? I think this is just a lesson for us um, that we uh, obviously have good motives. That we want to you know, please the Lord. We want to serve him in whatever way. We make sure that we follow God's example and his instructions on how to serve him and how to please him. And I don't think, well, this is the way I would do or this is the best way that I see. Really ask God uh, will uh, and look at God's word for direction that way. Yes. Good point. Other thoughts, Todd? Um, I might be getting ahead of myself, but do we see the curse of David ever kind of like fulfilled in verse 29? Okay. And David says, yeah, David says he curses or Joab and his family with his leprosy. Joab is eventually killed. I don't know about the rest of the curse, so I'm, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, why would Joab quit pursuing Abner the day before or the chapter before in the battle and then turn around and kill him? If, if he was so concerned about avenging the death of his brother. Yeah. It's a convenient moment to work on that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, everything, you know, in a lot of these cases, it's just whenever it happens to work out. Suddenly Abner was uh, listening to the word of the Lord about installing David as king. <laughs> Suddenly Joab is worried about avenging the blood of his brother. And, you know, a lot of times what we use as an excuse for what we're doing is not the real reason for what we're doing. Uh, is it that true for you? <laughs> How many times have you claimed one motive when the truth is that's not the motive? That's an easy thing to lie about. Because motives are something that really are kind of personal. You can't, you can't really see a motive. You see the action. 
So you can sort of allege any motive you want to, and it's hard to falsify. So it, it's, it's very easy for us to lie about motives. You know, if you lie about what you do, what you did, well, what you did is often, you know, somebody knows. But lying about motives is easy because nobody really knows. And I think you see that a lot here. You know, kind of alleging one motive when really it's another. Other thoughts? Excellent point, and often when we lie to others, we lie to ourselves and vice versa. I mean, it's a dishonesty that affects both ourselves and others. Ryan? Why in verse 30, um, it says, so Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner. Why is Abishai included? I assume he was involved in this. Joab and Abishai seem to have been, uh, you know, very much uh, partners in crime in various situations. We might as well, while we're at it, go ahead and read this. We, we continue talking ahead because it kind of is all the same story. Somebody want to go ahead and read 28 to 39? <clears throat> Afterward, when David heard of it, he said, I and my kingdom are innocent before the Lord forever for the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. May it fall on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And may there not fail from the house of Joab one who has discharge, who will or who is a leper, or who takes hold of a distaff, or who falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, killed Abner because he had put their brother Asahel to death at the battle of Gibeon, or at Gibeon. So David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes and gird on sackcloth and lament before Abner. And King David walked behind the beard. Thus they buried Abner in Hebron. The king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. The king chanted a lament for Abner and said, Should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put in fetters. As one falls before the wicked, you have fallen. And all the people wept again over him. All the people came to persuade David to eat bread while it was still day. But David vowed, saying, May God do so to me, and mourn also, if I taste bread or anything else before the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, just as everything the king did pleased all the people. So all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the will of the king to put Abner, the son of Ner, to death. And the king said to his servants, Do you not know that a prince... And a great man has fallen this day in Israel. I am weak today. Though anointed king, these men, the sons of Zariah, are too difficult for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil. Now, you may not have thought about this yet, but you see the problem. You know, okay, so Joab kills Abner and that was unjust. It wasn't right. But there's a broader issue in this. What's the broader issue? In practical terms. Looks like King's knocking off his enemy. Who had just become his friend and he left in peace. And now David's commander double crosses him. So what's this going to do for the, for the agreement, for the treaty? I mean, it makes it look like, man, you know, Abner agrees to deliver the kingdom into David's hand, then turns around and gets assassinated. So, 
Is Israel going to want to follow David after all that? You know, that's kind of the problem. Abner or Joab really complicated matters from David's perspective. So what does David do right here? Yeah, what kind of a funeral? Sad, Sad and public. public. I think that's the big uh, thing. A rather ostentatious funeral. You know, it's, it's very obvious that David's very upset about this, and he makes sure it's obvious. You know, he, he tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth, he walks behind the casket, you know, he, he, he weeps, he has this, uh, you know, sort of a poem for, for Abner, uh, he refuses to eat anything. It, it's very clear to everybody he's quite upset. He did not approve of the, uh, of the murder. I mean, this is such an embarrassing thing that the funeral has to be a media event so that everybody knows David's, what, David was not involved in this. He does not approve of this. You know, only wicked men uh, would, would kill somebody in such a treacherous manner. I mean, David is doing everything he can, practically, nearly everything he can, to try to, you know, mess things up here, or, or to try to make it clear that he was not behind this, that this was not his will at all. And, uh, you know, he says, in verse 38, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? He's talking about Abner. He's really uh, eulogizing Abner. He's really speaking highly of him. And he says something that he keeps saying over and over again in 2 Samuel. I'm weak today, though anointed king. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too difficult for me. He'll say that again, 16.10, and again, 19.22. He always has a hard time dealing with his nephews. They're just too difficult. They're, he's too weak to deal with them. They're always a kind of a thorn in his flesh. He kind of needs them. Joab's been an effective commander in many ways. But they're, they never really, they're, they're rather insubordinate at times. And they, 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 don't, they hinder more than they help sometimes. It was a recurring problem for David that I think he probably should have been stronger dealing with. I'll tell you what he should have done in my judgment. And, and particularly if he wanted to show everybody he didn't approve, can Joab. But he doesn't seem to be willing to do that. Maybe he doesn't think he's strong enough. David had issues with really disciplining his officers and his children. And that is one of his greatest weaknesses. A lot of great things to say about David. But the fact that he never really seems to be able to deal firmly with a Joab or an Abishai, or for that matter with an Amnon or an Absalom or an Adonijah, really creates you know, complications in his kingship. Comments and questions? Yeah. It's kind of interesting that David is upset about what Joab did here, but later on in chapter 11, he uses Joab to kill Uriah. And he has no problem with that. <laughs> that will be an interesting thing to look at. Yeah, it sort of ends up uh, undermining the... Uh, you know, moral integrity of David's objections. That's a very good point. Logan. We've seen a lot of good things from David, and we'll see more good things from him. But, I, but it's interesting to know, just in the first three chapters, some of the things that aren't good about David. Because we see him um, participating in polygamy and marrying foreign wives. And then here, even though he says a lot of stuff about, you know, even curses Joab and says, you know, the at the end of chapter 3, that the Lord will uh, punish the evildoer for his deeds. He seems suspiciously like Eli 
quote unquote rebuking his sons that he says he is but he really does it makes me think some about the fact that David had been anointed by God um, but yet still obviously made some mistakes it makes me think about the fact that how we can you know think well since I'm a Christian since you know maybe I go to the right church I believe the right things that we start not monitoring what we're doing as much because you would have thought giving the you know, how David acted when he was being pursued by Saul, you wouldn't have thought that he would have been so lax when it came to the guy who murdered Abner. Yeah, it does seem to be a weakness on David's part that he doesn't deal as firmly with people like Joab as he should have. Yeah, right. Could it be, since it was in Hebrew, that it wasn't common knowledge who had assassinated Abner? So he, in a way to kind of cover it up, he doesn't punish the person who did it? I don't know about that. I had not assumed people didn't know. Right. You had the public people, so I would kind of put it. Yeah, I'm assuming people found out. I don't know. Jason? What do you make out of, uh, in verse 31, where David even commands Joab to tear his clothes and put him a sackcloth? Well, you know, when we're not strong enough to deal with somebody, a lot of times we get a dig in. You know, reminds you of Pilate. You know, here's Pilate. He's innocent, he's innocent, he's innocent. Now, you know, I'll crucify him. You know, he, he knuckled under the pressure, but then he writes, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, and tacks it up there on the cross. And they're like, no, 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 no. What I've written, I've written. You know, he, he's stubborn <laughs> about the plaque, but, but willing to cave on the crucifixion. Sometimes, you know, I think that's the way we are. We'll, we'll sacrifice a big principle, and that bugs us so much we resist the compromise on some little detail. Eric. Does this text, would this text help us understand that if people have the wrong impression about something we've done, that we should go, we should make an effort to help people understand that's not what we were doing, or that wasn't our intention? Maybe. I mean, we probably aren't overly sure how virtuous this is. It was politically good. Maybe it was virtuous too. I'm not sure about that. Okay. Other thoughts through chapter 3? Okay. Yeah. Um, just like when David says, the Lord repaid the evildoer according to his wickedness, you can kind of see how he gets his inspiration for the imperatory psalms. Because sometimes when I read those, I'm like, how could you say that or wish that on someone, I mean, but he experienced a lot from his enemies, and I don't know, it's kind of interesting, because those seem very sincere, and you kind of wonder what's really going through his mind when he says this here. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, are we always consistent? You know, we're certainly not. Other questions or comments? Good, good thoughts, very helpful. Sounds like current events to me. A president, secretary of state, an ambassador, and all those, and blaming others, and having a big funeral, and, <laughs> you know, it repeats again and again. <laughs> Not surprising, is it? No. No. Well, it's certainly, the Bible's very modern. All right, chapter four, wonder what will happen.